You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch. Welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Coming up on this week's episode, really interesting show. Three guests, two segments. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Uh, Three really, really smart people. Uh, First up, Jenna Contreras and Lauren Stowell are ESPN feature producers who are the directors of 144. That documentary just came out. That's a behind-the-scenes documentary on what unfolded on and off the court over the two-and-a-half-month period of the 2020 WNBA season where they played inside a bubble. They called it the Wubble. And if you've seen this documentary, it's really just an extraordinary piece of sports filmmaking. Um, they, the honesty and the poignancy that they got from uh, the players uh, and the footage they got was just remarkable. You do not get this kind of access when it comes to a sports league. And so uh, they come on to discuss that project and how they were able to pull it off and you know what it meant to them and what it meant to the players. I think you'll find that conversation interesting. They're followed by Julie Stewart-Binks of FUBU Television. She has been on this podcast before and she talks about uh her show drinks with binks and how she's done that for home from home basically since the start of the pandemic which is really really impressive and like the challenges of doing something from home how to get uh, your content out there in a crowded marketplace um her reaction to espn and turner getting the u.s rights to the nhl julie uh, has a long history of covering hockey and is actually doing some hosting for NHL Twitter Live. And Leah Hextall getting a play-by-play job, which is uh, a really big deal. Uh, First woman she will be to call a national schedule of games for the NHL. So Leah Hextall, a true pioneer in this. So first up, Jenna Contreras and Lauren Stowell, directors of 144, followed by Julie Stewart-Binks, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Jenna Contreras and Lauren Stowell are the directors of 144, which, um, like I said, is a phenomenal documentary on the 2020 WNBA season, which um, I think if you're a sports fan, you know that they played that in Bradenton at the IMG Academy. Uh, 144 players across 12 teams, and uh, the you know as I've said many times, the WNBA players – don't just talk. They like literally back up their talk with action. And Lauren and Jenna, um, I thought really in a remarkable and engaging and poignant way, just captured what these women did during the 2020 season. And I'm pleased to be joined by Lauren Stowell and Jenna Contreras, who are also feature producers at ESPN. Lauren and Jenna, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. Hey, thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. So let me start with you, Jenna. Uh, And Lauren, you could feel free to follow up on any of these questions just to make it easy. Um, You know, I think the thing that stood out to me um, was that this is not one of these projects where you parachute in and just all of a sudden decide to cover the WNBA season. Like there was clearly a lot of discussion prior uh, to you, to you guys doing the documentary, I imagine that you had conversations with the players association. So, you know, as long as you want to go, how did this project come about? So funny that you say that it's not one to parachute in because it kind of feels like that's what it was in a sense. Um, you know, this moved on really quickly. Um, Shanae being a player in the WNBA and also an analyst with an ESPN, she had the idea to, you know, marry her two companies and she pitched to ESPN films and to Kathy Engelbert, the WNBA commissioner about doing a documentary on the season. Um, once it was greenlit and about, you know, three weeks later, I was in the bubble. So there was about three weeks time for Lauren and I to really immerse ourselves in all things, not only WNBA, but what was going on in the country. And so, you know, we spent a lot of time, a lot of, a lot of time on the phone, a lot of time researching everything. And, you know, we quickly realized that like the five pillars that we wanted to really focus on was going to be, you know, COVID like playing during a pandemic, um, the social injustice, which has always been what the WNBA has been about, um, mental health, you know, just being away from your family and your support system, 
obviously the game of what was going to go on and moms, you know, the WNBA is very unique in the sense that there are parents that were able to bring their children into the bubble and parents that were parenting from afar. So we knew that we wanted to highlight those uh, five pillars of everything. Um, So we went in knowing that, and then we just kind of let it unfold and we tried to remain as nimble as possible to really be able to pivot at a moment's notice. And, you know, a big pivot came on day 12 of filming with things. And, uh, you know, it was kind of a way we went with it all. Yeah. I mean, another thing too, Richard, that was interesting about the three week period before, you know, Jenna parachuted into Bradenton um, was really just like, we were in a different world, I think, than we are even today. You know, at the time, this was July of 2020, Um, we were still really navigating what the risks of COVID even were. Um, There was no vaccine in sight. You know, there was obviously testing and, and, you know, preliminary. We were on the precipice of there being a vaccine, but no one really knew when or how or if that would be possible. So really, it was challenging logistically. We had to think about um, scaling down the crew. You know, Jenna, you you think about doing an undertaking of a 77-minute or, you know, at that time, we weren't sure if it would be two hour documentary with one camera and one audio person and one producer covering 12 teams and 144 players. So it was um, a little bit of a logistical, uh, I wouldn't say it was a logistical nightmare, but it was a logistical challenge for sure to think about how to keep Jenna and the crew safe, how, you know, restrictive the bubble would be as far as, you know, do we need to be 12 feet away when we're filming? Are we going to be able to play to mic players? Um, those were all things that we had to consider um, to really make sure that we were able to capture the intimacy of the experience um, at, at the outset. We weren't sure what the parameters would be. So Jenna, were you inside the bubble the whole time or did you parachute in and out during that time frame. Um, so we came into the bubble. We started our quarantine um, beginning of August, and so we had a week quarantine before we flew to Bradenton, and then a week quarantine within um, an offsite hotel, and then within the bubble. And so we started filming. I want to say August fifteenth, and so with quarantine and with filming, we were in there for sixty-two days and shot for fifty-two of those days. Can you remind me when did the season start? So, so listeners will know if you're there August fifteenth. What's the time frame between the start of the season and you arriving? July 25th, right, Lauren? July 25th, correct. Okay. All right. So, you know, um, not there at the beginning, obviously, when when teams are doing whatever the word training camp would be, but pretty early into the season, you're, you're there. Yes. Yeah. And then even, you know, like in the media world, we're used to traveling, right? We're used to jumping on a plane and flying in and out of places and our entire world stopped. And, you know, like even when we were thinking of who we were going to bring uh, my director of photography, Joshua Smith and my audio tech Morgan Worth, like we had to weigh in how comfortable we were, you know, it wasn't just a, you know, leave work and go home. It was, we are living and eating and sleeping where we are working 24 seven. So, you know, was that something that we were also able to do? So you have the, um, you know, you get the league's permission to do this. So that's the Kathy Engelbert level. You have Chinea Agumake, who's a ESPN on-air staffer. Um, and so that obviously gives you, I think, more, um, more of an intro into the WNBA bubble. But at a certain point, like, you have to get the permission, for lack of a better word, of the players to document what they are doing. And I'm wondering, and th- this is for both of you, did either of you have to make a pitch to the Players Association or did you talk to, let's say, the leadership of the of the WNBA PA to sort of explain that this is what you wanted to do? This league is very good, obviously, about, I mean, they understand smartly that a documentary is ultimately going to be publicity for the league, et cetera. But again, like what you got out of them during this documentary is not something we often see shared by athletes. So I'm wondering if you guys had to sort of, for lack of a better word or phrase, did you have to make the pitch to players in, uh, in terms of why you wanted to do this and why you wanted this access? Yeah, I think that's where Shanae was instrumental in all of this because, you know, she kind of did all of those pitching for us. You know, there was a time... Um, we made a you know PowerPoint deck of like, this is who we are and this is what we want to do. And Shanae led that charge of it. 
But so that vouch of, you know, this crew is coming and, you know, Sinead putting that trust in me, I think made everyone feel more at ease when I was there. And so that first interaction, I think just really helped catapult our relationship quickly um, in the sense that, you know, the women quickly saw that I was in it with them and I wasn't going anywhere. And, you know, I did something that was maybe a little nerve wracking in the beginning, but ended up working out great is I didn't write down one single interview question for over the 60 interviews that I did. It was just a, you know, my first question out of the gate to everyone was, how are you doing today? Because this is really heavy. There's a lot on your plate. And, you know, I saw these women struggling and I wanted to know that I had empathy for them and that it was going to be okay. If you wanted to reschedule an interview, fine. Like, you know, I, I know where you're at. <laughs> you're not going too far. So we'll have that time to make it up. But, you know, I think they, you know, saw that quickly, you know, and that we were invested in them and it was important for them to tell a story. And Lauren and I, from day one, you know, if we were going to be granted this trust from these women, our main goal was to represent them in the light that they should be represented in their true light and their strong um, sense of intelligence and their vulnerability. We were going to show everything about them. And so, you know, I think just those conversations and, you know, we'd stop an interview or stop practice. And then I'm in the same lunch line with them. We're in the same dining hall. Like we're at the same pool. You know, I think just, they really trusted that I was in it with them. And I think doing that experience helped immensely because, you can't really explain what it's like living in a bubble unless you've actually done it. And in a way, it was this community that quickly kind of created because there was only a finite of people that have actually experienced it and never will. So I think there was just kind of like that unspoken bond that came quickly of just, you know, seeing each other around campus and always waving. And half the time I would walk up to people and be like, hey, I'm Jenna. I'm with Shanae. How's it going? I just want to let you know, I'm excited to be here. I would love to talk about these things with you. Can you keep me updated on stuff? You know, and really relying on sending emails after emails and text messages and relying on Lauren when I would be running around of like, hey, can you hit up this person? Um, yeah, I think it just was us being submersed completely. And it was, you know, like we jumped in head first and we weren't going to come out of it until they were leaving. Lauren, um, I, I think the players in the league would have no issues at all, quite frankly, talking about any topic that they were asked. I think they've pretty much proven that time and time again. Did you get any internal pushback at ESPN or elsewhere about the topics that you ultimately wanted to examine here, including um, institutional racism, including uh, the political climate, of America, the WNBA players players made it very clear that they had a stake in the Georgia election, including a police-involved shooting. I wonder, just from your end, these are not these are topics. If we're going to be blunt, that ESPN obviously does not want to necessarily be talking about on a daily basis. So I'm wondering, from your perspective in this film, um, did you have to fight for any of this stuff, or did you feel like you were granted permission to tell the story of what happened inside there? Yeah, it's a really um, important question, you know, Richard, I, I think from the outset, um, the decision for Jenna and myself, um, you know, we are two women of color and they, you know, ESPN and, you know, the league, it was important that they felt that we were representing the players as well, you know, that there was representation in the bubble and also in the edit room, in the script process. Um, that was important. So that was encouraging, I think, just personally for me to know that, um, you know, there was an investment to have the story be told from a perspective and through a lens of, you know, allowing us to have a little bit of latitude to, you know, incorporate our own kind of experiences and our, you know, um, you know, our personal, uh, you know, a touch to it. Um, so I think that that was like the first step. And then once, you know, the season started to unfold, we had conversations before the 12 days in when Jacob Blake was shot and, you know, the league took a stand, um, you know, for those two days before that event even happened, we had had conversations at a high level about who the women of the WNBA are that they have been at the forefront of social justice and fighting against 
injustices, um, you know, that are taking place in, in America um, from the beginning, that this was going to be part of our storytelling and that we were very direct, you know, with our management that we not only wanted to make sure that those stories were told and that those women were given a voice, you know, a league of 80 percent black women that they had a voice, but that we were humanizing this fight. And that was something that Jenna and I were very clear and direct about at the, you know, in the outset of, you know, the project and, and as we began filming. And then it almost became, Richard, undeniable 12 days in when you have this event take place and you see the raw emotion that these women and teams, how they had to deal with these circumstances that, you know, they were not in control of, but that they were really, we were looking at a microcosm of what a lot of, you know, black women in America were feeling. And, and, you know, and so that was something that was important for us. And we did, I will say, we, we stood firm in that um, through the process. If there were ever conversations about a scene being omitted or a question about a cut for time, if it was related to a real experience that these women had went through that was unique to them being black in America, we would make that point. And I know that there were several examples of that, that we, we did want to be clear that we thought that it was important to include moments like Tiana and Emmanuel, um, the little boy who was watching his mother cry, um, you know, in Feld, like that moment was something Jenna and I were not going to, um, you know, we were going to fight for that if it came to it. Um, Lauren, there, in seeing the um, poignancy of so many of these women on camera uh, talking about their, uh, their life experience, uh, what it's like to be a woman of color in America, it strikes me that, you know, if, the, if what we ultimately saw make camera, you must have had, you know, I mean, these were like unbelievably poignant things. It strikes me that you probably had to make a lot of hard editing choices as to, you know, who not to put in there. So at a certain point, you know, and I think it's fair to say that like Natalia Chanwa and Neka Gumake and Brianna Stewart, Sue Bird, um, I'll get to the Courtney Williams scene in a second, might be the best scene in the film, but like th you made a clear choice as to sort of who were going to be signature voices narrating this. And I'm wondering ultimately how you decided upon that. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, it, it was challenging. I mean, you know, we had, like Jenna pointed out, there were over 60 interviews that she conducted. You're talking about 12 teams, 144 players that, you know, we were trying to give equal coverage to in those 62 days of shooting. But ultimately, like, you know, the characters that rose to the top and that, you know, did make the cut, we felt represented not only themselves well, but they represented other voices in the league that we knew were true and that we had captured. Um, we did have that challenge of trying to make sure that people could connect with these women. Um, and we didn't want to, you know, in the 77 minutes, we wanted you to, to ultimately care, you know, and through that, it does mean kind of, you know, narrowing down and trying to, um, you know, consolidate some of your storylines or your characters, which was really hard um, because we did want each of these women to represent a whole, which is, you know, the whole reason we called it 144. Um, Jenna, I don't know if you want to add to that. Yeah. Even to, you know, the great thing about this and just the W is that they are always educating, but we didn't want it to come off as preachy. You know, we wanted the viewer to kind of be entertained first and educated second and I think that came through with, you know, Natalie Achanwa eating breakfast and her just talking to us about an experience that happened to her boyfriend and her being, you know, feeling helpless, trapped in this bubble where she's safe, but she's also away from her person that she can't be there and be a support system for. And that Richard came from, she was leaving the bubble the next day. So it was more of us just coming over to talk about her feelings of, you know, leaving the bubble and how she felt about the season and she took us there. And, you know, I think that was an important story to be told. And I think it just, you know, like for some people when they were reviewing the film, we got like, that was their oh shit moment. That was the moment where they learned something that their reality is different than other people's and that they need to 
understand why and try to fix that in any way that they can. Yeah, that was to me the most poignant moment of the film is Natalie Chamwa at her uh, temporary housing, um, sort of explaining her truth. Uh, and she's actually particularly interesting in that she's Canadian. And so, you know, as a black woman growing up in Canada, she has an interesting perspective on that. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of moments like that. But I thought, yeah, I was kind of blown away by, uh, by her and just uh, sort of her honesty. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I want to ask you about Courtney Williams. And just for people who have not seen the documentary, there's a scene where uh, the entire league, by the way, you two should correct me if I'm wrong on any of these descriptions here, where the entire league is debating whether or not is it whether or not they should continue to play or whether or not they should play in, in whatever the next game is. It was everything. It was everything. Okay. And so, you know, there are players who are obviously sort of saying, listen, like, it's incredibly important for us to uh, to play. This is our forum. We're not necessarily in the NBA. Like, we're, we're going to get attention only because of basketball and what we're doing. And Courtney Williams just basically comes out and says, like, you know, I'm, I'm all happy for you guys and your, you know, social justice initiatives and marching, et cetera. But I, I got people who are like relying on me to eat. I got to play. And that was just fascinating to me because like you do not ever see like the behind the behind the scenes of that where you're getting all these different viewpoints and you're having a player who basically I think is very different than the rest of the women in there who's she wasn't necessarily dismissing their larger cares about bigger issues, but she was just saying like the economics of this are what matters to me. And uh, I'll start with you, Jenna, when that um, when you saw that footage, maybe you were in the room shooting it like uh, you had to know, like, wow, like I just got something or we just got something here that uh, like we do not see in sports documentaries often. Yeah, without a doubt, that was just a historic moment that will probably never happen again. You know, just 144 women, an entire league in the same place, in the same room, having a meeting, you know, that itself. And then we were the only camera allowed in there. And, you know, my crew and I, we tried to say as much fly on the wall as we could to not disrupt the discussion. So that's why sometimes, you know, there's behind the head shots um, because we didn't want to move. We didn't want to disrupt the conversation of what was going on. But yeah, I mean... That whole meeting lasted, gosh, probably about 90 minutes or so. And it was a little bit of like tiptoeing around of like, who's going to say it. And that's finally when Courtney's like, I'm going to air it all out there because I know I'm not the only one probably thinking this, but I'm going to tell you and speak my truth. And, you know, I think she certainly wasn't the only person that thought that. And she really, you know, brought it back to what's going on because if the NBA was having this type of discussion, nobody's worried about the economic um fallout that could happen. Nobody's worried about if they're going to be able to pay their mortgage or if they're going to be able to put food on the table. But for for the W, that is a genuine concern. And so, you know, when Courtney spoke up, of course, I was elated of, oh, I've never seen anything like this. I've never had this type of access. And, you know, I think Lauren and I knew that this was going to be something unique that we'd never seen. But, you know, I gosh, we started shooting that day at 9 a.m. and didn't wrap till 2 a.m. And I think I was calling Lauren and telling her just the things that we were getting and that this was going to be a must include, you know, and thankfully the league saw that, you know, and like, we're okay with us kind of showing that part of it all. Um, but it was, it was intense, you know, um, it was hard to cut that down. I think it's like the gist of it all, but, you know, I credit to Courtney Williams. I think it was important to show her earlier in the film of kind of being the one that speaks out and is blunt. And then you kind of have that small mini arc of her later in the film to see her really stand in her convictions with it all. But, you know, like she kept it real and it needed to happen. And, you know, with the league, they are okay hearing other people's opinions and know that not everyone's going to agree, but at the end of the day, they're going to do what's great for the whole 144. And I think that's what you saw on that. Lauren, um, obviously Brianna Taylor becomes uh, 
part of this film, uh, especially given the reaction of the players um, to the, I think it was the Kentucky Attorney General. I, do I have my title there right? But, you know, the sort of the announcement from Kentucky officials as to the adjudication of that. Um, for your purposes as the filmmaker, obviously that has to be in the film, but then what's your thought process in terms of getting um, getting people from Brianna Taylor's family uh, to talk as her, her mom did in the film? And it, I, I, one of the things that I thought about when I saw the film was, did you screen it for the Taylor family uh, prior to the film making air? I just, I'm just sort of curious about how you sort of approach that. It's certainly an important part of the film and what the players were going through. At the same time, it's not, it's not basketball. And so as the filmmaker, you got to figure out a way, you know, how do I sort of navigate this in, in a way that's, uh, that makes it seamless for the viewer? Yeah. I mean, I think, um, you know, Jenna and I can definitely both speak to this. I think, um, you know, from the beginning that was definitely, I mean, we knew that they were dedicating the season to Brianna Taylor. We knew that that was something that was going to define and inform everything that they did in the season. And we weren't sure how it was going to play out. So when Jenna actually got on the ground and, you know, she, we would have these conversations and Jenna would, you know, we would talk about it and she would say like, Lauren, like, this is, this is more than a Jersey. Um, you know, this goes deeper than these women see themselves in Brianna Taylor. They see, you know, the, they can personalize what her struggle was like, you know, they, they identified with, you know, where she was coming from and that it, they could see themselves. I mean, you saw with Natalia Chanwa, they could see themselves in Brianna and that was genuine and real. And as Jenna kind of started, it started to, um, you know, uncover itself and especially after Jacob Blake and when they really realigned with why they were there and what they were there to fight for and Brianna and, you know, the voices of black women who have been victims of police brutality being at the forefront of what they were dedicating that season to, um, you know, I'm going to let Jenna speak for a minute about the verdict um, because that we knew the verdict was coming down but as to how we were going to capture it, you know, we had conversations, should we interview players, you know, following, um, you know, once the results come in, it was really challenging. And I'll let Jenna speak about kind of a moment that, you know, you saw in the film that was really, um, it happened spontaneously and it led us, you know, to interviewing Brianna Taylor's mother, Tamika Palmer. Um, Jenna, if you want to talk about that. Yeah, you know, um, it was um, a game day for some and practice for others. And, you know, I'm reaching out to team PR of, you know, what's your schedule? Can I come here? The verdict is coming down. What is your team planning on doing? And was getting a little bit of closed doors because understandably so these athletes have a job to do. Um, so the crew and I were outside of the storm practice gym and I see Alicia Clark walking up and she's looking at her phone and I had already met her and we had done an interview before. So I felt that there was a report, excuse me, a rapport between us. And so I asked if she was watching the verdict. She said, yes. And I said, can I film you? And she said, yes. And then away we went with that. And, you know, as we walk into the storm practice, we see that everyone is kind of on their phones, paying attention, you know, Joel Lloyd comes over to, uh, to visit with um, Alicia Clark and then even, you know, Sue Bird and Sammy Whitcomb and um, Epiphany Prince are all, you know, right before practice looking at things. And so, you know, it was just a really good example of how basically social justice, the pandemic, basketball, everything was married the entire time in the season. And there was never a break, even if you're in the gym or you're playing basketball in a game, it's still above your head and there's still things going on. And so I think that, you know, just really showed that you couldn't really ever escape the reality of what was outside the bubble, even though you were safe. And then even, you know, going back a little bit, uh, when Lauren mentioned that I had talked to her, like, this is more than a Jersey. This is so much deeper. Like these women, when they weren't practicing or weren't rehabbing or weren't resting, they were meeting with mothers of um, victims of police brutality on zoom. They were talking to Ms. Palmer on multiple occasions. There was a true relationship there. It wasn't just for the press headline. 
you know? And so, you know, we knew that we wanted to talk with Miss Palmer and, you know, see her side of it all because Lauren and I had talked, if this was a feature, we would talk to the grieving parent of whatever it was of, of the child that had passed or what was going on. That would just make sense. And so, you know, um, we finally got to speak with Miss Palmer and, you know, like it's, it's tough even to still watch that. Um, but it's also, you know, I think very necessary to see just how these women were able to help a grieving mother, you know, and I, I don't think, you know, Miss Palmer doesn't do a lot of press. And so I think the fact that she would do it for the women of the W also speaks volumes. And so um, I think it just was very important as filmmakers for us to give Miss Palmer that time to speak to the women and show what the women to the world of like what they have really done for her. And that this is, you know, a true relationship. And like how she said, you know, on some days where it's really tough, she can, doesn't have to stand as tall because of these women. And, you know, it's just an example of, of like what they've been able to do in such a short amount of time. All right. Here's the, um, here's the final one, uh, for me. I'll start with you, Lauren. Um, you know, you, you got, um, you got the rare sort of, um, rare insight into this league. Uh, I mean, obviously, particularly you, Jenna, uh, basically embedding with them for as many weeks as you did. So you got a real sense of just the skill level of these players, uh, the intellect, uh, how hard they compete, the athleticism of the league. Um, viewership numbers um, have gone up over the last couple of years. Um, I think there's certainly momentum when it comes to media coverage, even though media coverage... Uh, you know, across the country is down because uh, the industry is cratering. I give ESPN a lot of credit, even when you can criticize ESPN about some of their WNBA decisions. Um, there's, it's unquestionably and undeniable how committed they are to the league. So I want to, that's sort of a, an intentional preamble to uh, start with you, Lauren. Um, what do you think, sort of from a media perspective, in your opinion, what is the next step? to sort of get the WNBA into more sports fans purview uh, and particularly casual fans, because as exciting as the league is and as good as the league is, um, you know, there's still very much a niche sport in the U S which I'm sure for the players in the league in some ways is very frustrating because they are the best of the best. Um, you know, it's not the MLS, no disrespect to the MLS, not the seventh or sixth best soccer league in the world. Like it is literally the best league in the world for what they do. Uh, and having this unique perspective and obviously working for the media rights holder, um, I'd be curious for your perspective on where you see how, how and where you see things might go in order to get this league, uh, uh, a little bit more light. And I'll start with, um, and I'll start with you, Lauren. So one of the things I think that, you know, Jenna and I learned through this experience, um, you know, in the 60 interviews that she did, I will honestly say like putting the producer cap on, like there was not a bad interview. Like I was blown away by just the depth, the character, the, you know, the, there's so many women in this league who are not only, you know, can be role models, but they're, they're super women, you know, they're superheroes. Like I, I, if, if I had any, <laughs> you know, say in what the direction of the league, I would lean into these women. Like they are incredible. I am inspired by them, you know, and, you know, we do stories like this all the time of inspiring people, but these women are doing it all. And, you know, another thing that Jen and I talked a lot about is, you know, as far as how, you know, these women are filmed and captured on film, like they should be treated just like the men. Like there's no reason why we should not be bringing cinema cameras and phantom cameras and the best equipment, you know, onto the floor, in the baseline, on the sidelines, capturing the athleticism and just how, you know, these are professional elite athletes. And the athleticism only translates when you, you know, take the time and care to elevate it on a platform and to give it its shine. Um, so that would be like, you know, if I had a say in anything, I just I wish that people knew more about who these women are and were able to see them in the same kind of flashy ways that we present you know, the, the men of the, the NBA, you know, with the, the fancy cameras and the, you know, the shine that they get. 
um, the women, you know, deserve every bit of that. Jenna, give you the final word. Yeah. You know, when Lauren and I were, um, you know, really gifted with this amazing opportunity, um, we knew what stakes were against us. We see the Twitter trolls get back in the kitchen. Women don't hoop. Nobody watches. You know, even when the film got announced, like nobody cares. ESPN always doing the wrong thing, blah, blah, blah. Um, So we knew that the way to get people to watch this was not to really emphasize basketball, right? It was to emphasize the character and the story of these women and these athletes. So I think there needs to be an investment, not only on when it is actually aired on networks, but also give some insight into who these athletes are and how they have become the people that they are and what they do and with their struggles and their tribulations and everything. There just needs to be an all around investment. And, you know, I second Lauren was saying that just even the quality of gear that is used needs to be better and everything that we should be doing, there should not be, you know, men's, the NBA is done this way and the WNBA is the sub core of that. Like, no, they are equals you know, and I would even say the style and team play of the WNBA is better than the NBA because a lot of the NBA is above the rim and it's flashy. Um, but, you know, I think there just needs to be a large investment in the character development and storytelling of these athletes. And, you know, that was a goal that we had with 144. You know, this wasn't, this isn't a sports documentary completely. This is a human experience documentary and you don't have to be a fan of the WNBA to enjoy it. And, you know, that was our goal of hopefully if in any little way that we can help grow the league and support these women and create new fans, then we're elated. ESPN feature producers Jenna Contreras and Lauren Stowell are feature producers at ESPN and also the directors of 144, a behind the scenes documentary on the 2020 WNBA season, a season like no other that was played inside the Wubble in Bradenton, Florida. Lauren and Jenna, thank you very much for your time today, and uh, congratulations on a really important film. I always think that uh, the uh, the quality or the hallmark of a film that matters is one that uh, that will last and be watched for many years to come, and I'm I'm sure yours will be. So thank you very much uh, for joining me today on the Sports Media Podcast. Thank you so much, Richard. We appreciate it. Thanks so you. much. I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League Podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. All right, as I said at the top, Julie Stewart Binks. I need to ask her if there's a hyphen somewhere there. Julie Stewart Binks hosts Drinks with Binks on Fubo TV. Did I pronounce that right, Julie? You got it. You're one of many that's gotten it correct, so I appreciate that. Okay, and she's also the host of NHL Twitter Live, which I'm uh, assuming is after games. You go on and go back and forth with people on Twitter about the game they just saw? Actually, no, it is. It's like a pregame show on Twitter. And it's uh, it's like as the pregame on TV is happening. So, for instance, you know, a game starts at 630 or like it says, quote unquote, it starts at 630. We come on at 630, do 12 minutes and then go. We have two minutes of the game and then just like wrap up. All right. Well, congratulations on me for the shittiest uh, uh, research on Julie Stewart Binks' career at the moment. So I apologize for that. That's a pregame show. Uh, but welcome, Julie, to the Sports Media Podcast. Welcome back. Thank this, you. I, I did not give you the formal intro because I know you for a long time and I feel like I can give you more of the conversational. Yes. Yes. I the, appreciate you having me on. I remember the last time I was on and I'm glad that this is a different discussion this time. Yes. All right. So let me ask you about your show first, because you've done. Are you now up to? You're. I, I saw a tweet from you. I feel like in, uh, two months ago that you were like at show seventy three or seventy four or something like that. Are, are you at a hundred yet, or where? Are you, oh man, I don't even know. We're at like five hundred thousand shows that we've done. Uh, especially, we've actually done the show more in quarantine or you know during the pandemic at home than we ever did in person. And I haven't seen my coworkers since last March, uh, like of twenty twenty. So I'm sure they're all very happy about that. But it has been, yeah. It's been unique. 
so I want to ask you about this, and then we'll get to the NHL. Uh, what what have you learned about making content from home? What have you learned about just the the process of doing what you're doing, not in an office, not at a traditional studio, but literally at a makeshift studio at your house? Honestly, it, it, it pains me to say this, but that you can do so much with so little and that there are a lot of jobs in television that are unnecessary. And uh, the fact that you can, and, and it's so great for these younger kids that are, they, you know, they call me, they're like, oh, I'm having a hard time getting a job. I just finished school. I'm like, you're doing the same thing I'm doing right now where you're setting up your phone, you're setting up your camera and you're going to shoot a show and you're going to probably do it on Zoom or some kind of platform like that and tweet it out and TikTok and all this kind of stuff. But just the idea that like if you have an if you have some kind of idea for content, you can do it and you don't have to go through so many different steps. And my house is also a studio, which sucks a lot of the time because it's not working from home. It's home from work. And so you never have that delineation between being able to be off and to unplug and to just be yourself and then you're on or be on being on. I feel like we're on all the time. And so that has been like a, a huge, a huge issue for mental health, I'd say. But other than that, I've realized I could do a lot on my own. That's interesting. You know, one of the things that, um, and by the way, tell me if my, um, my impression or sort of analysis here is incorrect, but I think one of the great things about what you're doing would be the absolute creative freedom that you have in coming up with concepts and, and booking the guests that you want and having the conversations you want. The downside would be you don't have this big machine, mm -hmm. no disrespect to, to your current employer, in terms of promotion, the way, let's say, like if you were doing this for an ESPN or um, if you were doing this for a uh, you know a Netflix or something like that. So on the one hand, you have this massive creative freedom. On the other hand, do you feel like you're always hustling to try to um, get your name out there in a marketplace where there's obviously – you know, thousands and thousands of thousands of content creators in sports. Yeah, that is the double-edged sword of it. And it is a continuous hustle for putting your content out there. Because even if you feel, oh, you know, this week I'm so mentally drained, I can't, I can't put out so many clips. You're like, I have to put the clips out or else no one will see it. So there is definitely a lot of pressure to be like, okay, you know, at two o'clock and four o'clock and this time and this time, and then I'll repurpose it on Friday and, oh, the Indy 500 is coming up. So I'll put James Hinchcliffe on in another week or so. And so you're always planning and you are like, if you want your show to succeed, you have to be 1000% all in. And it's been like, it, I've been sprinting a marathon for the last two and two years doing it. But as you mentioned, I don't have someone calling me saying, Hey, you know, you you kind of said something like this, like we can't run that interview or, oh, you're booking a guest that's uh, we don't we had a bad relationship with in the past. You can't have them on. No one tells me anything. And I mean, I've uh, up until uh, two weeks ago, I've been booking all my own guests. So you know what that's like? It sucks. It sucks booking guests. <laughs> yeah. So you book me, you know, it's, but it's, it's very <laughs> you, difficult. You were easy. I appreciate um, it. <laughs> and so it's been, it's been a lot of work, but then when you do get to see yourself have like your own show, you are, you, you do feel very rewarded. The hard part is, is like, we're all so burnt out. I think that that's like, like we're all, we're all incredibly burnt out because there's no such thing as a vacation anymore. There's no such thing as, as, unplugging so you have the creative freedom but then you're like how how creative do i want to get this week i'm going to save some for next week or i'm going to do this or this but a lot of the times i just i'm able to just let my personality shine through i don't have to sort of worry about you know yeah picking up the phone call and, and getting canned for saying something now i said that i will do something and that will happen but for the time being we're good did you uh, did you get your own booker? Is that what happened? We did. We moved on. We moved up on the in the world. We we have a guest booker. We did have one for a short period of time before him, but um, we have one now, and that is uh, a huge relief for me. All right. One and the last one on your show before we get to the NHL, and I want to talk about the media uh, rights deals because you're someone who covered hockey going back to your uh, to your work in Canada. Did people should know that Julie's Canadian, even though she's worked in the states now for many many years. Is, um, you know, like the interesting hook, obviously, for your show, of course, is that you can drink mm -hmm. on your show. And maybe I asked you about this before, but I, if I did, I'll ask it again. So where did you come up with like that idea that probably have been other shows and certainly way back in the day? I remember like if you ever watch like old school shows from like uh, 
the 60s or something like that or the 70s like people smoke on these talk shows <laughs> and and do stuff but what like it's if nothing else it does make your show unique in the space so what was the uh what was the origin of deciding hey rather than just do a straight interview show i'm gonna encourage my uh my guests to drink something on it Honestly, Richard, my boss came up with this idea um, because we originally had the show Call It A Night, which is just in the ether right now because of the pandemic. But it was like, well, we also want you to do a vodcast, which was uh, you'll have a, you know, we'll call it Drinks With Thinks. And I was like, sure, that's fine with me. I, I felt it weird to have two shows at the same time, but, you know, I, whatever, I do what the boss says. And so then that has become a lot easier to do in the pandemic, of course, because people can just click on a link. We don't have to book cars that we can get better guests. But the thing I like to try to tell people, people, alcohol is an interesting t topic with people, right? Because like, I always like to say it's a drink. It doesn't have to be alcohol. We've had a lot of sober people on the show. People get scared when you say booze. They get scared that they're going to say something stupid. We always tell, like, we run everything by every PR person and, you know, different networks, especially ESPN. When I say, you know, most, I think everyone from ESPN has had water or coffee because it's like one of those things that people get really scared that, oh, they're going to have a sip of uh, beer and then just like take their shirt off and and tell all the secrets of vspn it's like we actually don't really drink that much on the show because we're talking so much and my boyfriend he'll he'll be sitting essentially right beside me because we're in the same room while i'm doing my show and he's like you know you barely drink on the show because you are you're talking you, you cheers you take a sip and then you do a segment so i basically have like three sips of a drink during the show so it's not like Unless when I had Katie Nolan on, we we wrote jokes for one another. And then whoever had the worst joke took a shot. So we yeah, we got a little buzzed after that one. Mm, no, so, so something to think about here down the road for the sports media podcast. <laughs> um, all right. You've covered hockey for a long time. Going back to your days uh, in Saskatchewan. Even even further, I was covering the OHL. I was, uh, you know, Queens OHL. University hockey back oh. in 2005. Yeah, I was. All right. I mean, you're, you're, the, you're bona fides. If you're covering, if you're covering Canadian college hockey. You're, you're yes. <laughs> All right. So understanding, obviously, that you have been doing some work for the NHL. And we'll sort of let our listeners know that. What was your reaction to ESPN and Turner? getting the U.S. rights to the NHL after NBC's very long run? Honestly, I was so shocked. I was, I was like speechless because NBC has become synonymous with hockey in the States. And ever since I lived here for the last eight years, it's been, it's been just where hockey is. It's the only place hockey's lived in my mind. And so the fact that I, I was happy though, because as great of a job as NBC does, and they're very buttoned up and, and they're like, um, they're like the keg, like, you know, to have a Canadian reference, like, you know, you're going to go there and you're going to have a really good meal, but it's probably going to be the same every single time. But then when you see ESPN and Turner come in, it's, 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 it, it excites me because I'm very curious to see how the game will be covered. Sure, I know what hockey fans are like as I am one and I've seen what happen, has happened at certain networks before when they have acquired rights and they've decided to do things a little bit differently and the audience didn't really like maybe a particular host who is very popular. So I'm, I'm curious what Turner does in that regard. I believe that like ESPN will sort of stick to the script as they do normally and they have a number of incredible hockey minds there that deserve to be on the broadcast the you know we have linda cohen of course steve levy uh bucci grass barry melrose and the bill like there's the list goes on of who deserves to be on that broadcast but turner is what i'm like super curious to see what they do i know that they'll everyone's still in the hockey world likes to see doesn't want anything too spicy. Like they, you know, <laughs> we're not having strawberry milk here or oat milk or almond milk. Like we're having either like 2% or 1% or, you know, maybe a little skim, but like we're not changing it too much. But I think that they have a little bit more, I, I believe that they would have a little bit more room to sort of play in. So, you know, one of the, I, so I have two things for you here. One of the conventional wisdoms whether it's correct or not, has always been like the, the NHL cannot grow unless it has a larger presence on ESPN. So do you buy that or do you think that's sort of been mythology basically in the U.S.? I think that's one. I think that's one aspect of the fact that it it needs more 
publicity on ESPN, that that one wouldn't hurt it for sure. Okay. And then the other thing is, as someone who um, watched hockey presentation on the CBC growing up and mm-hmm. Sportsnet and TSN, what, wait, when you watch games in the States, and obviously at this point, it would really only be games that are on NBC. What are the differences you see? How, what is the difference between what you sort of grew up with or were used to in terms of hockey presentation in Canada versus what fans see, hockey fans see in the States uh, or have seen from NBC? That's a very interesting question because we stream like Hockey Night in Canada here on Saturday nights because I like want to watch the Leafs games. I'm not going to get it unless it's somehow on NHL Network. And when uh, when I'm seeing Ron McLean with the panel and with Elliot Friedman and Bieksa and Jen Botterill and Kelly Rudy and all these guys, it, it feels like they are all just like these friends watching hockey and it feels like it's okay. It's almost like it's okay if they mess up or if they goof around a little bit, which I hadn't remembered when I lived in Canada, but that feels like a long time ago, but it, but it feels a little bit more like, Oh, we're just a whole, we're just a bunch of, of, of hockey fans. We're going to give you great, great analysis, but like we're, we're self-aware and we're going to have some fun with it too. And it feels like the fabric of Canada, right? Like, like Saturday night hockey in Canada is Sunday NFL football in the, in America. So it's, it's different in terms of like how many eyeballs you have and and who's interested in it. And so when I sometimes watch NBC, I feel like I, I don't necessarily maybe connect to them. Like I would connect to hockey night in Canada because that's the, the people broadcasting it maybe didn't have the same kind of growing up experience of, Oh my gosh, like every single Saturday morning at 5 a.m. I'm playing hockey. My I'm wearing my gear to the rink because my parents made me put it on at home to like, you know, being in those cold rinks to getting the hot chocolate from that smell of the the locker rooms. Like you you sense that with hockey night in Canada. And and that's what I feel when I watch it. And as I mentioned, my boyfriend's American. And and it's been really, really fun to watch him watch Canadian broadcast of hockey because he's a hockey fan and he now has the impressions of Chris Cuthbert, Jim Hewson and Kevin BX down pat. It's it's <laughs> because it, you know, they're unique in the way that they broadcast the game. No offense, obviously to, to anyone at NBC, they are creme de la creme. They are, you know, I'm a huge fan of everyone who, who broadcasts the game. I just don't necessarily feel as though they're like my neighbor or my friend doing the broadcast. It's interesting. That's kind of that's an interesting um, that's an interesting observation. The you know I'll, I'll give you one hockey one before uh, I ask about Leah Hextall. The um, as you can imagine, because I know you have family still up here in Toronto where I am. The the conversation, of course, is can the Leafs finally you know one win around to get out of the North? But I think here there's like a um, there's a bit of a fear in a way among Canadian fans as to how good the rest of the league has been outside of the North division because so many Canadians, I don't know if this is true and just your friends that you talk to up here, they've been so focused, hyper-focused on the North division that I feel like they've barely seen any other team. Like they barely know how good like the Colorados are, or the Tampa Bays are. Yeah, that's very fair to say. And I think that also applies to a number of people down here. I've done interviews with a couple people who have said, oh my gosh, you know, I have to now learn the central division because I've been watching the East the whole time. Like we haven't, this is the thing. We haven't cared as much about the other divisions, how good they are, because we've been focused as hockey is a regional sport on our divisions. And it, it was, you know, the other I tweeted about it last night, but it's like this just feels like the regular playoffs because there's no Canadian teams, really like the, the North Division hadn't started. Uh, you know, we're talking about this on a, on a Wednesday. The North Division hadn't started. And so we're we're like, oh, this is just, this feels normal. But I'm you know, I'm curious if that holds up when everyone says, oh, well, you know, oh, the North Division's so good because they suck. And that's why Connor McDavid's scoring so many goals. And it's like, do we do we know if if they suck? Like, no, we don't. We Like the litmus test will be that for the first game when it will be probably somewhere in like wherever Buffalo or or wherever in the States at that point, which will be a whole other ball game. Um, but I'm curious. To see yeah. That. I mean, first of all, if you say Connor McDavid sucks, like you're sort of immediately booted from the conversation. Yeah. Like you're, whether you're, the Oilers you're go canceled. Past, yeah. Yeah. Whether the Oilers go past the first round uh, or not, uh, you know, I, I, I would obviously selfishly, obviously I'd like to see the Leafs go far. But yes. I really think the North division 
final uh if the Leafs can beat the Canadians between either the Oilers or the Jets will be excellent I think I don't even give any I lived in Winnipeg I was there for Jets 2.0 coming back I don't think the Jets have a chance against the Oilers yeah, every person I know from Winnipeg <laughs> says the exact same thing they're already penciled Edmonton in the uh fine and that listen that would be great that's great for hockey here if mm-hmm. NBC well not even NBC at this point because it really doesn't matter but like that's the kind of thing if you're a hockey fan where you would hope that the American broadcaster would really like figure out a way to market the hell out of that series so that more American fans can be introduced to Austin Matthews and, and Connor McDavid. Because they, they don't, they they don't see them, you know, naturally, especially Edmonton, you just don't see them a lot in the States, understandably so. NBC has gotten no viewership. You get nothing in viewership from Edmonton if you're NBC. Yeah. Other than marketing Connor McDavid. Doesn't count for your viewership numbers because you're not going to get a ton of you're getting nobody from Canada who counts for Nielsen. And the reality is there's probably not a ton of Oilers fans in the United States. No, but then if you've got your Austin Matthews, you can pump him up as your team Agreed. team America, your Captain America someday. Yeah. Then then lead into the Olympics in Beijing, all that yep. jazz. So that's yep. that's what they will harp on if they get there, you know. If they get there, that's why the Olympics. I I, I understand that the league makes no money from it, or has not made it, and and they you know they hate the fact that they they bring their best players in the world to the Olympics and the Olympics benefits. But there is a, in my opinion, a massive value, and that's that mm-hmm. like, to have millions of people watching these players uh, in that kind of environment. I think ultimately can help create NHL fans, or at least I've always believed. Agreed. That, but, uh, but anyway, all right. Last thing here, um, you saw the news about Leah Hextall um, getting a uh, uh, full, like a play-by-play assignment uh, heading forward from ESPN. I, I don't. Um, it hasn't been announced yet what uh, her schedule will be. I'm not even sure from everything I understand from sort of ESPN sourcing that they even know in terms of like who's getting what question because they quite frankly haven't even made the decision on who's going to get the main job, which is probably between Steve Levy and, and uh, Sean McDonough at this point, but they haven't even made that decision yet. Uh, but I think that's great. I mean, it's really a pioneering thing. There's been other, as you know, Julie, uh, you're probably in this uh, conversation as well, you know, whether it's Sherry Ross or Christine Simpson or Jen Bottera, like you mentioned, or Cami Granado, um, you know, uh, there are so many women who sort of um, in the last like 10 plus years, 10, 15 years, maybe not Christine Simpson or Sherry Ross, but some of these other women, they've gotten prominent roles, particularly as analysts on the NHL. Uh, but this really is this glass ceiling breaker to me. To have a woman calling play-by-play for national games is phenomenal. And it goes to show you just how hard and how much of a grind it's been for Leia Hextall because there was literally no one who she could look at and say, okay, that's my role model in play-by-play for the NHL. I want to do this because she will be the first to do it, which is amazing. Yeah, it's it's incredible. And I give Leah so much, so much credit for really, uh, you know, pivoting in a way because for those who don't know, like Leah was uh, a sports anchor, sportscaster, a reporter, and decided a couple years ago, and I, I'm not sure exactly what the catalyst was, but I think that, uh, a lot of it is like probably a need and a, a void to fill and, and a potential opportunity, but to do play by play, because as you mentioned, there, there was no one, there's no one to look up to, to see, to say, Oh, I want to be like them. Like when I decided to do stand up and to do comedy and do things a little bit differently, I looked to Katie Nolan and, and was like, Oh, she, I see that co- those colors. Now I feel as though I can try to do that. Leah kind of like created this out of really nothing. And so, and she has worked her butt off doing so much with, with learning the sport with, I mean, she obviously knows the sport extremely well. She has the family history. She has the experience. She has the credibility, but doing play by play is something that is, is a talent and a skill that does not have an overnight. And I think she deserves it. I'm, I'm excited that the rest of the world's going to be able to, see her get this role and then also learn about her. Like she's been in the sport since she was a baby, like, and, and to, you know, the haters that love to listen to this and the misogynists out there, like they, she knows more than they do. So that is what's, what's really good. And to see ESPN to make a, a decision like this, like is it, it like warms your head. It's like, okay, we have really good humans out there that are, 
you know, sure, Leah hasn't worked at NBC before or doing this in this regard or whatever. She did do the NCAA tournament, but they're going to give her an opportunity. And I think that's like huge for women everywhere, because when we see that, it's like, okay, it's, you know, there's a lot of hard days in this industry. And when you see someone like Leah Hexel get that job, it's like, okay, like keep going. You know, there is, there is a potential for me somewhere down the line in some space like this. All right, Julie, is there anything else you want to add or promote before, before we get out of here? Uh, uh, I mean, no, I guess not. I mean, well, I mean, Julie, (laughs) seriously, like someone needs to work with you on promote. I mean, just in that case, um, re-promote what you're doing already then. Okay. 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 Uh, I was like, I don't want to be annoying. So so Canadian. I know. Honestly, you're going to apologize and then be polite. There's sometimes I'm too Canadian uh, down here. What's up? I'm too Canadian sometimes down here. I'm like, I'm, I'm getting better at being American and just being like, just, just steamrolling. So, you know, this is a good conversation. I didn't mean to interrupt you. And I apologize, but there's a good reason. It's very American of you, yes? Yeah, I know. Well, of course. <laughs> so let me ask you this question because I think this is true. I find being an American up here, I mean, of course, after me apologizing for the last five years, but after we get past that, um, I find being an American in Canada, in Toronto, is like a really, like, how do I say it? Like, it's, it's having that kind of POV or some of the things that you're born with as an American is very valuable. Like, I think, I think it helps make you work in Toronto. And what I mean by that is, I, I don't know what I mean by that exactly, but I just feel like having a little bit of an American attitude without not being an asshole, I feel like is a good thing in Canada. Conversely, I've always found that Canadians in the U.S., in particularly a city like New York, if they're a little more chill, if they're a little more polite, if they're a little more nice, I feel like that works very well for you in the States. So interestingly enough, this is just a theory, and I will get your take on this. I feel like these two countries, interestingly enough, are very good fits if you're an expat in the other country trying to work. Yeah, maybe. But I thought Deitch, you were a Canadian, considering your Twitter feed is basically Captain Canada all the time. I didn't even I didn't even know you still had an American passport these days. Wow. I mean, have you? <laughs> I, have, I, I, have been, I have i have been accused of talking at least occasionally, you you, you i like it i love seeing it i'm like oh he uh, you and i changed places um we i did. think I, I will say though being a canadian in new york city does not help when you're trying to cross the street because uh, it took me like probably three hours to cross the street at one point because i just was following the street signs right <laughs> isn't it illegal to cross when the this the stopping sign is going in canada or something like that so that's not a new york thing but yes people people are like oh of course you're canadian you're so nice so but i won't maybe be really nice i'll just be like a normal human being but they just assume they look at you through that point of view of like being super super sweet so if that helps in that regard but i think your american point of view interesting comment maybe you have a little bit more of an edge like when you get to a stop when that's it yeah when you get to a stop sign and you're in a car you're not like everyone else letting everyone else go ahead right like everyone's sitting there being like no you go first you go first you go first you're like i'll go so then you go and you do your thing. And that's the I need the a car American first way. for that for that scenario to happen. Really. But yeah, I mean, I understand what you're saying. All right, well, I, we'll, we'll, maybe we'll just do a podcast on this and have other Canadians on oh, and other Americans you know, Renee on. Renee would love to be on. Renee we'll would Rachel be, Renee Bonetta, Young, yes. who is, yeah, who's been, who's been a podcast guest on this podcast many times would be excellent. Because I find for Renee Young, I think Renee actually has a, a great edge that she yeah. has used to her advantage in the States. Although I have seen her in Canada uh, in person a couple times, and she is as nice as a human being can be. No, so I don't know if Renee, this is no, just a guess. She's amazing. I, I don't know Canadian. if Renee takes on the, takes on whatever the culture is of the country she's in at the moment. I don't think she has an edge down here. Like, unless you're talking like she has a cool edge, like a, yeah, like she's a got, don't leather you think she's jacket. Kind of cool, hip, like, like she can roll with any type of person edge. But that's Canadian. I think that's Canadian. I think, uh, I mean, maybe, but I feel like yes. Renee, Renee strikes me as someone who can interact with, that's, I think, her sort of genius. Yeah. She can interact with any kind of person, um, no matter what their interests are or, like, what they're doing. She I just, agree. People want to talk to Renee Young. Like, and that's not the case for everybody, but I think it's the case for her. Yeah, but I think that would be a Canadian attribute because she's so really? nice and sweet. You and think everybody to wants talk to talk to Jay on, right? And Bruce Arthur? Uh, I, I message those guys all the time. Um, because, you're, you, because you're an incredibly nice person. I mean, yes, let me think I'm about so it. nice. 
I like hiding behind this front of being so nice when I'm... Let me think of people that can get you in trouble. Like, does everybody want to talk to uh, Nick Caprios? I don't I <laughs> like, on my show. He's actually a very lovely guy. Yeah, he's guy. a lovely guy. Yeah, yes, yeah. I know. It's an interesting right. topic. I need to think of... Uh, is there any Canadians like who I don't want to talk to who are annoying as hell? Who are jerks? Uh, yeah, there's there's tons out How about there. The fuckers just screwed up the whole vaccine. Uh, uh, yeah, but you guys, act. but wait, you guys are gonna get to uh, some kind of percentage, and then I can come home and not have to quarantine for two. Yeah, I do think we will hit. Uh, I mean, herd immunity is kind of a mythology, anyway. but we we will hit. I think eventually a higher percentage of people of citizens in the country vaccinated than the u.s at a certain yeah point. we're, Not there we're yet. trending back down into but there's le- there's far as you know there's right just now. so much less vaccine hesitancy uh, in canada yes that eventually they'll go over 80 percent. i just don't know when oh it'll but, happen it'll happen soon don't worry we're, we're in for a real mess right now so uh we had our heyday that uh, lasted right, well, like all right so months. we're good well you're in new york <laughs> new york honestly is its own little island um all right well we'll fin- we're going to continue this conversation i have no idea if anybody cares we'll listen but but, nope. but we may do a podcast on this. I may get some other Canadian. Yeah, let's uh, get a Canadian and American roundtable. I feel like Donovan Bennett would be very good in this in this topic too. You need some people who have. I mean, the perfect people would be who have worked in both countries. Well, let's get Jay and Dan. Uh, I mean, you're going to have to get them. I'm not sure they're, <laughs> sure they're going to come on this podcast if I just invite them. Oh, they, not to mention, they not love to mention, you, Dice. Not to, mention, not to mention Jay and I work for competitors. Yes, true. Uh, but yeah, maybe he'd make an exception on this. All right, listen, Julie Stewart-Binks. I mean, you know her. She's one of the most popular Yeah, Canadians guys, you know me. I'm States. super popular. I'm famous. I'm a celebrity. You can find me, Drinks with Binks, at Fubo right. TV Wednesdays, 8 p.m. NHL Eastern, Twitter. NHL I mean, look Twitter. at her resume. Look who um, she's worked for, ESPN, yeah, I've had a, Barstool, I've had a cup of coffee at uh, literally every single network, which I, I don't really know what that the takeaway of that is, but it means I've lived a life that has been a fun roller coaster, and we'll have to see where it goes next. You've done good. I mean, listen, you put, you've put you've, you've eight years in the States. That's impressive to me. Yeah, I could be a citizen, but I have decided to remain on a green card. I like the duel. <laughs> you have tax, to, it, you, tap links, it, tax implications. You have to renounce still. your Canadian citizenship. Like they make you do that. Oh, to do it the other way. You don't, but I don't have to. No, no, you All don't. I have to you do don't. is say, I, w- I would never give them my U.S. citizenship no. ever. But I, I like the idea maybe of one day becoming a dual citizen. That that's good cool. for you. Yeah, that works better yeah. for you. I think that's actually interesting. All right, anyway, Julie Stewart-Binks. Thank you, Julie. You work cheap, uh, uh, and I appreciate that very much. Thank you Thank very you. much, Richard. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to uh, my guests, uh, Jenna Contreras and Lawrence Stowell and Julie Stewart-Binks for their time and their insights. If uh, you like this kind of uh, conversation, please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page um, wherever you listen to the stuff. Give us a five-star review and a nice note. That stuff really matters and helps. Prior to this one, we had James Andrew Miller on the end of the Kenny Main era at ESPN. That was an interesting conversation. Before that, we did a... Uh, a, the future of uh, sports viewership and ratings, uh, where we looked at where things are heading in terms of viewership. And then before that, Steve Kornacki, the NBC News and MSNBC national political correspondent, who is uh, getting massively into sports, now working for Football Night in America, as well as uh, on NBC's horse racing coverage. So Kornacki uh, switching roles and, uh, and getting into sports. Uh, again, thank you for listening to this podcast we're at uh we're coming up on episode 150 soon for this podcast if you use the or if you combine the sports illustrated one that i did uh, you know i've been looking at something like you know, 450 episodes of a sports media podcast which is kind of amazing so thank you very much for uh continued listening and uh, an interest in this little niche podcast i appreciate it thanks of course to patrick antonetti thank you to everybody at cadence 13 Thanks for listening. Thanks to my guest this week, and we'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.